0: I'm Austin Meek with Waco Business News, and you're listening to Downtown Depot, where we track the ins and outs of Waco business. My guest today is Wanika Muhammad. Wanika is the owner of Four Sons Trucking Incorporated and also a community advocate based in East Waco. We talk about her business and her life in the area and the ways that it has grown for good and for bad. Welcome to Downtown Depot, Wanika.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: It's right nice to. It's really nice to have you. You and I were on a working group um, for the Elm Avenue regentrification, uh, reunification, <laughs> however you want to call what's going on there. And so that's how I initially first got to know you, and was just impressed by the way that you've been able to build relationships with people in the community. And it's clear that you've had a long and storied history here in Waco, and these relationships run deep. So give our listeners an idea about your background and who you are.
1: Okay. Um, I've been in Waco for about close to 30 years now, a uh, small business owner. My husband and family and I own a trucking business, and I'm a resident of East Waco as well. So that's my uh, sojourn to East Waco. My husband is like a sixth generation <laughs> East Wacoan, so uh, we live on air property, and um you know, just pretty active in the community. Always have been. We love it, East Waco, is our home.
0: So you ended up in East Waco because you were following him. Yes,
1: yes. <laughs> do you <Follow> know? <laughs> do you know
0: how his people ended up in East Waco?
1: Um, well, the he's a a Horn descendant, and the Horn descendants date back to slavery post-Reconstruction. So um, the story is, is that uh, his, one of his great, great, greats, uh, there were two brothers that came, one went to Miss Mississippi and one came to Texas after slavery. I, I, yeah, uh, before or after, can't remember exactly. But so he's a, a descendant of the Horns, and most of them you find in South Waco, Downsville. So he has a rich history that goes back even further than he can <laughs> probably <laughs> just say he's been here a long time.
0: So Four Sons Trucking is a business you guys have run together for a while now, and I would imagine that COVID changed the business a bit. Possibly supply chain issues that we're facing across the country has changed the business a bit. So what's the status of, of Four Sons? What exactly are you guys shipping, and how has the business been impacted in the last couple of years?
1: Uh, you know, surprisingly enough, because of the type of trucking that we do, COVID has not impacted us as it has some businesses. Uh, because we haul big material, flatbed material. And there's there's a lot of construction projects going on around the world, so we haul heavy equipment. So we haven't had to have, um, we haven't faced, I should say, a lot of issues. But now the the thing now is the gas prices, the fuel prices. So things like that have affected us more than COVID. But I believe we could have probably done more because the companies we work for or are, are haul loads for they had restrictions. So other than that, there was no big problem for us, and so I'm really grateful for that. You know, and I feel kind of bad saying that seeing everybody else. Um, have issues because of COVID. So that's where, since I was doing pretty good, that's where my advocacy kicked up for the businesses that weren't as fortunate as ours, you know. And so, you know, we started doing some programs and asked the city to give, you know, grants and things like that to those businesses.
0: With something like gas prices, which Mm -hmm. is a global thing that's happening now, your business is so tied into it. Yes, How do you manage around that to stay profitable? Do you have to raise prices? Do you, um, you know, have preferred relationships with gas vendors?
1: Well, the the good thing about, you know, uh, being in business as long as we have, we've we've been through so many storms. We've become professionals at (laughs) weathering it. So this happened before back in about 2008. I don't know if you remember when diesel start, you know, double, tripling there. What we did then, because you have to, as a business, you have to do an assessment of where you are and think about all these external factors that come in and kind of disrupt that. So what we did at that time and what we're doing now, yes, we will increase prices, but we also decided to stay more locally and market more uh, locally instead of over the road because, you know, that's more gas I have to fuel I have to buy as I go over the road. So we've been doing a lot more at getting local contracts to kind of offset, you know, over the road and interstate.
0: Even if gas prices were to subside, do you think that you might have stumbled upon a new model for the business? Is it possible? Oh, sure. Yeah. focused locally is better.
1: Yes. Well, another thing we have done in responding to threats like that is that we have other parts of this. Say, for instance, uh, we have a broker inside, and so we are growing that, uh, doing freight brokering, not just for my trucks, but for other businesses.
0: So, what does that mean exactly? Freight uh
1: brokering? It's, it's basically like being a travel agent for trucks. <laughs> if you need a load, you know, I can broker that and help you find um, freight, and you know, p- put you with the company and the truck meet, and they. Um, have a um, business situation like that. So we've started a freight brokering company, which we were doing it in-house just for ourselves. But now we've um, started another, you know, LLC and business to offset that. Let's see what else. Um, we also are in the process of starting a hot shot division. That's for uh, heavy-duty pickup trucks. So, you know, we're responding to these threats by, okay, maybe we can go into other parts of trucking to respond to that so that's my you know I'm a business major so (laughs) I've learned how to you know the good thing about going through tough times is that it helps you to learn about you know um, how to handle strengths weaknesses opportunities and threats so that's my thing I'm always thinking how can I offset that problem how can I take care of that and still make money
0: I'm hearing SWAT Strengths, weaknesses, <laughs> opportunities, threats. Yes,
1: taking you back to business <laughs> school, right? You
0: you clearly have had a little bit of academic backing as well as the real world backing.
1: Oh, yes, yes. And I'm still having academic backing. I'm working on my doctorate uh, in education. I have a master's in legal studies. I, I, my plan was to go to law school, but, you know, I had an epiphany and decided I wanted to teach. But so I do all that in addition to my business. But all of these things help me to better manage and be more efficient in the business. So it's a good thing.
0: What's something new in the trucking industry that's been a sea change from when your husband and you started this business?
1: Oh, uh, trucking is becoming more automated than it's ever been. I'm sure you probably heard about Uber and the truck that drives itself. Um, I remember back in... 2011, even loads, uh, booking loads are more automated. Everything is done on the computer. Um, and people don't realize this, but the trucking industry is the most heavily federally regulated industry. You know, we're regulated by the federal government. So they have a lot of rules. And one of the main um, piece of legislation or rule that was passed a few years ago was the electronic log books. So I knew when that started, everything else was going to go electronic, too. (laughs) So um, even booking loads, I can use my phone and, you know, do uh, broker loads, accept loads, book loads. Uh, So it's becoming more automated than it's ever been. Even down to now, they have trucks that, you know, they still have to have a driver in it, but they're, you know, still working those kinks out with, you know, trying to— eliminate driver fatigue and things like this and have an automated truck. So yeah, trucking is becoming more automated all the time.
0: This might be what you were talking about earlier with brokerage, but Mm -hmm. is there a company that's like Uber for truckers? So if I was in Minneapolis and I wanted to get down to Texas and I happen to have an Mm 18-wheeler, could I get on an app and see are there oh, sure. any companies sure. that are needing stuff taken down
1: south? Oh, yes. They call those, we call them load boards. But it's a, a very automated way of, you know, kind of like booking a flight online or booking a car rental online. You know, you, um, you're you matching equipment with a broker, you know, if you have a particular. Because trucking is just not one type of, you know, some people do um, long haul, short haul. They have they haul big equipment, food and things like that. Because trucking is the backbone of this country. I just I firmly believe that and I know that anything we have, a truck bought it to us. So um, yeah, that that's how it's done now. It's like matching a truck with a broker and you know, negotiating price, negotiating contract. And the the broker and contract is the, the quickest. Contract you'll never sign because you meet somebody for the first time, they say, okay, here's my contract, you sign it, and I can book that load. (laughs) So you have, and most of them are pretty uniform, so you have to be a pretty, you know, speed reader. And then that's how uh, drivers are connected with brokers.
0: A lot of industries these days are facing issues with not finding enough good employees. Employee retention, people moving on to other things. What's that looking like in your business now?
1: Well, That is a very good question. And trucking, a lot of people think that the driver shortage is because of the pandemic. Actually, that's a little bit of a misnomer. The shortage is due to pay. Uh, Driver pay has not increased in, I'm going to say, about a decade or so. Rates haven't really increased much. So, yeah, that is is an issue for a lot of trucking companies. They're looking for drivers. They can't find any. Um, luckily, I'm a driver <laughs> among other things that I do. But some people they they have that problem, and I don't know how. Uh, well, I do know one thing they're doing in response to that: they're lowering the driver age um, for commercial drivers. They're getting them right out of high school, <laughs> basically. So they they I keep up with a little bit of the legislative process. They're starting to change those laws for um, drivers under 25. Uh, you know, it used to be that you can get a commercial license at 18, but you couldn't leave the state. You know, it had to be in trust state. So they're changing things like that to accommodate the driver shortage. Um, more companies are, you know, offering major bonuses, <laughs> hiring bonuses to attract drivers. So things like that, that um, is going on right now to attract drivers. Uh, I'm in the process of I just purchased some property on I thirty five to build a shop, but I wonder about that too. Hey, will that be my problem? <laughs> you know, but but so far so good. I've had people come to me and say, "Hey, can I drive for you?" I'm like, "Just wait a second, yo." Know?
0: <laughs> well, for the last thirty or forty years, if you have bought property, it usually has not been a problem. It's
1: yes, been, been yes, been pretty good here in Wake. Oh, yes, yes, I, I yeah, I was lucky.
0: You're hearing from Wanika Muhammad. Wanika is the owner of Four Sons Trucking and also a community advocate. Now, there's a real distinction for you between community activist and community advocate. What is that difference?
1: Yeah, yeah. People like to call me an activist, but advocacy to me means you care. I'm not saying you don't care as an activist, but sometimes we can be so uh, working so hard to be activists and getting people what they need we don't think about the care that goes in it so and because I face those same issues I think I care more for the businesses than you know I would because I can relate to them I can I can empathize with the things that they go through as businesses
0: so just because you've been a small business owner you've been in East Waco for an extended period of time you can empathize and understand what they're going through sure so what's the state of things over in East Waco? I think for a lot of Wacoans who don't live in East Waco, they know of Elm Avenue and they know there's a lot of construction happening and they know they're hearing about a lot of things. And there have been two hotels that have come up already. There have been the apartment building. But at least for me, the development has been slower than I anticipated. And I'm starting to just realize that's a fact of life. A lot of that was probably COVID related to but for folks who maybe haven't been along Elm Avenue recently or spent much time in the neighborhood of East Waco, which is more than just the Elm Avenue corridor, give us an idea of, of what East Waco is like now.
1: Sure. And and I just wanted to say, um, Austin, part of the uh, and I'll just speak on Elm Street right quick. Part of the reason for the slow development uh, had nothing really to do with COVID. Um you know, Elm Avenue is a historic corridor, so you have a lot of old uh, infrastructure there. And with that, the city has a lot of, you know, infrastructure that they've had to take care of. So I think it's more infrastructure issues along Elm Avenue. But overall, East Waco, you know, with the I mean, because if you take in downtown, that's a piece of it. And you see a lot of things going on, but people are like, okay, what is really going on? What what is all this growth? You know, because I have a triple threat. I live by the river. <laughs> I'm in the middle of the Brazos River, downtown, and East Waco, and here I am in the middle. So I see a lot of different things going on at once. So um, and then uh Baylor University owns most of the property where I live. So you have a you have a lot of things going on kind of at one time. It's not just one central type of development. But um <clears throat> excuse me. I will say that I'm I'm still there. I'm still advocating and I'll advocate until I decide I want to leave there, but uh it has changed a whole lot. Uh, I don't know my neighbors much these days. <laughs> you know, so uh that's that's been a a difference to deal with.
0: So, what is an example of something that you're advocating for currently? Like, what what's going on there uh-huh. in East Waco that people should know about?
1: Sure, sure. Uh, what we've been advocating for lately, and have been successful in it, and finally uh, have become sort of a team with the city of Waco. Uh, since well, since the pandemic, we have been advocating for uh, state and federal funding to come to the businesses. Uh, you know, it, to get them through the pandemic. But currently, we are working on uh, with the city of Waco the allocation of the ARP funds, the American Rescue Plan funding for businesses, and trying to get a little more money because they have broken this money up into different pots to help um, housing issues, um, uh, work skills, and training issues, helping employees upskill their employees uh, for different. Uh, training. Uh, also, there is money in that plan f- to help businesses. So that's what we're currently working on. Uh, we've been having meetings with the city of Waco, um, the African American Chamber, and we all have been kind of partner- partnering, excuse me, to do that. So that's what we're working on currently. Because businesses, even though uh, the area has changed, it's been gentrified, there are still those businesses that remain. They are still there. I'm one of them. So we still need access to these services because historically East Waco has had these type of funds that come to the area, but they weren't allocated properly among those businesses. So I feel good about that now that, um, you know, we can change from the past and say, okay, the past may not have been so good, but what are we doing now? How's that working out for businesses now? Um, There's also been a bank to come to the community that not just housed there, but uh, a bank or institution that's been helping those businesses. So um, I feel good about it. Um, And like I said, that's that's the new East Waco. I'll be there as long as (laughs) I need to be. But that's what we're working on currently.
0: What does the term gentrification mean to you? And how is gentrification different from just a normal path of redeveloping an area?
1: That's a very good question. Um, I've been asked this question probably for the last about 15 years. Uh, What is the difference between gentrification and revitalization? Now, you know, it's kind of like a Venn diagram. You see two circles. They overlap a little bit, but they are different. Gentrification is more of an erasure. Okay, you're you're taking away some of what was there. Revitalization is adding to what's already there. Okay, so that's the major difference, just in a real short sentence. Um, when something comes in, it should add to, not take away. So when this gentrification happens, some culture gets lost, businesses get lost, um, existing residents become displaced, that's a gentrification situation. Now, people have mixed those terms, and I have to say, well, no, that's revitalization, that's gentrification. So I think when everybody understands the difference, then they can go about saying, okay, am I doing this? Am I helping? Because I've heard people say, well, you know, because I know I had a conversation with uh, uh, about four mayors ago, He said, well, what's the big deal? You know, people wanted East Waco to to be better, you know, or or to do good. And we're doing that. Now, what's the problem? I said, well, the problem is not the revitalization. We love that. The problem is, what is the cost of you doing that? Are you changing my way of life to revitalize? Or, you know, and he said, you know, I didn't think about it like that. I said, so that's that's the key. You know, if— if everybody can still exist and we can grow and change, no problem. But when you say, okay, in order for me to bring something new, you're not in that equation. So that's, why I, that's, that's what my advocacy has been about, not to change anything, not to stop anything, but to say, hey, I'm here too. I've been paying taxes. I've added to East Waco. I live here. I'm proud to be here. So don't leave me out of your growth and development. And this is what I say to the City of Waco officials. We want to be, Waco is growing by leaps and bounds. You think I don't want to be a part of it? I love Waco just as much as you do. I made a choice to be here. I raised four children here. The name of my four sons, (laughs) trucking. So I want to be here. I want to enjoy all the nuances, the the newness, the uh, development. Because, you know, I, I'm I'm from San Francisco, California, originally. I come from a city of growth and change. But no one has to be erased for somebody else to grow.
0: So if there were an undeveloped piece of property and someone were to put a building on that, mm-hmm. that is just revitalization. That's not gentrification because you're not removing anyone from that. They weren't living there. They didn't have a business exactly. there. The gentrification exactly. is when... There used to be a corner store that the community used Mm -hmm. and someone knocks it down and puts in a 30 story apartment building that no one in the community can afford.
1: Yes. Right. Exactly. You said it. uh, Correct. Austin. You know. If you come to me now, let's get something straight. People can buy and sell property all they want. That's between the buyer and the seller. But now, as I said to some of these people, you know when they come, and they want to talk to you. Is what now I can't tell you what to build. I can't tell you because when you buy that property, you have that right. You have a property owner right, okay, just like I do. But if you bring something and you that's not conducive to the community or may not help the community, are you really Are you revitalizing or are you gentrifying? See, that's a question that that person has to ask themselves. Now, you know, if I'm an investor or a developer, you know, I'm I'm thinking about that business project that I want to do because I also am a business owner. So I understand, hey, a lot of times it's about business. It's not about, you know, the politics of things or other things. It's about business because you get in business to make a profit. Okay, so... You know, I would never take that away from somebody, but I just, I, to me, that's a moral. That's on the city because cities seek these people out, developers and stuff. So it starts with our municipal, and this is what I said to them. And I read a fascinating book that gave me some understanding on that, um, and I can't think of the term, but it's by a man named uh, Moskowitz, and he talked about. Gentrification happens because cities become in a bind. You know, when when everybody left and escaped to the suburbs, they left the urban core empty and desolate. So cities are like, okay, what do we do? You know, we we have to attract people to the city. We need tax revenue. We need. So I understand the reasoning for it from a business mindset, but. I, do, I also know in order to do that, something has to be sacrificed. And usually those people in the inner core are the ones that pay the price for it. So that's just basically, um, in a word, how I can say that. Do you think that
0: the city is doing enough to advocate for those in the community who don't have a voice? Do you think that there's enough... Um, hey, we're having a public discussion about this. We've done a good proactive job of making sure everyone in the community knows we put flyers on people's doorsteps. And obviously not everyone wants to participate at that level, but I do think that the city has a responsibility to make sure that people are aware of this public process and their input is important. Do you think that that message is being effectively communicated? I think
1: think now we're starting to see a I should say, some some activity on the end of the city. And I think before, when you don't understand that and people are not there to make you understand that, you probably just look at it as business as usual. So I don't want to say that I think it was a lot of reasons probably why they didn't understand it first, but I think it's on us to, to make them understand to keep saying it, and to keep demanding that they do it. When I say demand, I mean from an advocate standpoint. Hey, you you have to do this because, you know, if anybody knows anything about me, I know about where money's come from, how they're supposed to be used. And basically what I did, I just showed them the history. I said, I'm not going to preach to you. I'm just going to show you the written history of what has not been allocated. Now, you can't say that we all should be on the same footing when I never had access to the things that helped me grow. Now, once you give me access to those things, and if I choose not to grow or to uh, whatever, you know, better my condition, then I, you, you, you have the, uh, the right to say, hey, well, we tried to help. We put everybody, you know, we gave them the resources they needed to thrive, and they just didn't do it. That's not your fault. But you can't tell me, I should be, you know, better than where I am when you never gave me the resources to thrive. If you look at the last 20 years, and I said this to the city uh, manager, there's a written history that funds have been allocated to this area. But who did they go to? Who? We didn't get them. Somebody got them. But we didn't get them. So things like that. And you have to show, I think when you advocate, you have to educate as well. OK, because, you know, I can't just assume where they should know their the city. But, you know, you got new people to come into government. So they have to understand. And once they do, then they can say, OK, you know, I can't help. And, and we have had a very um, successful dialogue lately with our city representatives because I think they understand that, hey, you know, we need to do that. And I really want to thank them for that, because, you know, it took a long time. <laughs> it took a little advocacy. But that's OK, because. Things have to grow. Uh-huh.
0: So we got about a minute left okay, here. Okay,
1: sorry. Always no, this is me. great. I I can listen <laughs> to you
0: forever. I'll get you out of here on this one, Nika. Five years ago, uh-huh. where East Waco was uh-huh. and where it is today. Are you more or less optimistic about the future of East Waco?
1: Well, it's not the same. I'll just say that it's it's not the same. There definitely definitely is a difference and how I feel about it. I don't feel like it's the same little, you know, uh, place that I came to 25 years ago, but I'm okay with change, and I know things have to change, so I am, I do lament some because things are not the way that I know it, that it used to be, but I also know that things will change and grow, so I don't know what to be optimistic about yet because everything, like I said, everything is still in process. So I can't really say, OK, now East Waco is this, it's that. So you may have to ask me that question later on down the line.
0: <laughs> I look forward to having another conversation yeah. with you about this. Wanika Muhammad is a small business owner and community advocate based in East Waco. Thank you for coming on Downtown Depot, Wanika. And thank you for having me. Thanks again to Wanika Muhammad of Four Sons Trucking and to you for tuning into episode 123 of Downtown Depot here on Waco Public Radio. I'm Austin Meek, and you can find me on Instagram and Facebook in between episodes at Waco Business News. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back with another brand new conversation with a small business owner, civic leader, or engaged citizen on the first Friday of April. You've been listening to Downtown Depot where we track the ins and outs of Waco business.